contrasting that with the call of God, the, what we call the five-fold ministry call that others possess. And it, the, the pastor's office and ministry is a little bit distinct at times. And the pastor's heart is certainly towards people, but the pastor's heart is towards the sheep. The sheep. The pastor gives his life for the sheep. And, and as a pastor... Today, I want to remind you of some things here in the Word of God that I think is going to really help you. A, a few weeks ago, I preached a message entitled that Jesus was more than a Savior. I don't know if you remember that message, and that's a very difficult statement to make. I don't want that to be sacrilegious in any capacity because I'm grateful that Jesus is my Savior. And I'm very, very thankful today that the sin debt that not only of Adam, but my sin debt had been met in his atoning blood. And that now I have eternal life dwelling on the inside of me. Don't you? I'm so grateful for that. I'm grateful the Bible says in the book of Romans, how beautiful are the feet of those that preach the gospel. That somebody brought that message to me. In an evangelistic way, for me it was a children's church service in 1976, in Batesville, Arkansas, at Landmark Baptist Church, that somebody brought that message to me, and my heart was receptive to it and responded, and my sins are forgiven, and I have access to God's eternal kingdom. He is my Savior today. But I preached to you a few weeks ago that He's more than your Savior. He's your example. That Jesus didn't just come to save us he came to demonstrate unto us through his life a life that's pleasing to God y'all remember that and and I, I hope that you understand the context in which that statement was made Peter himself the apostle said he left us an example that we should follow in his steps so we're able to see through the record of the evangelist and also the epistles were able to see a little image of Jesus. He did a lot more and said a lot more than what the writers captured. right? But what they did capture becomes a template for us to model our lives after. He's our example today. Amen? Y'all believe that today? I do. I, 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 believe that, I believe that to be doctrinally sound. But there's something that I want you to see today that, the, that he's more than an example. That's the title of my message today. He's more than an example. I know that's not super dynamic in the way that it is written, simply more than an example, then what is he? Well, I want to ask you to turn with me to a couple of verses to kind of get this established here. And it's in the book of Hebrews for a minute, and it's in the second chapter. And we're going to read verse number 17 here for a moment. It says, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Now, theologically... We could develop this, but I'm not going to fully just attach to that. But I want you to see this. He behooved him. There's something in him. It's, it's almost like the way it's written there that it's taken us into, um, you know, into uh, before there was time, before there was measurable time, before the Genesis. It was that, it, you know, because he's known as the, the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world or before the foundation of the world. So it almost seems like that there was something in his heart even prior. So it was behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. That he may, might be a, a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. And there's that message that I heard when I was eight years old that, 
that tugged on my heart that I knew that I was a sinner and that, that I was indebted to God and that I needed reconciliation. I needed redemption. And Jesus made that reconciliation, did he not? But then read on down with me at the 18th verse. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able, King James English is, is actually pronounced, this word is pronounced, it's an old English word, it's actually pronounced to a degree, sucker. So you have to kind of say it with a little bit of emphasis, you know, sucker, like that. And he is able to help, might be your translation probably reads help, or come to the aid. He's able to relieve, I read one definition, he's able to relieve those that are tempted. And so, as I began to meditate, going back in my thoughts, I began to think about the person of Christ, and I began to think about, without hesitation, He is my Savior, right? I could not save myself, neither could you, right? And we had to cast ourselves upon His mercy, and we had to, by faith, fully receive His redemptive work, correct? He's our Savior today. I can say that with the clearest conviction in my heart today. I can also say that he is my example, that he lived a life that I can follow through reading and praying and meditating and, and following the example that I see in the Word of God, that I can emulate the pattern of a life that Jesus displayed while he was here on the earth, right? But the message is titled today, he was more than an example. And what I mean by that is today, he's more than just a template for you. He's more than just something in a book for you to look at and attempt to model your life after. This passage here says that he's your helper. This passage says he will come to your aid. He will come alongside of you in your communion and your walk with God. I'm going to take you on a little bit of a journey here today. We're going to cover just some things. I won't be as as long as I probably could have been, so I'll try to be a little bit briefer. But we're going to look at, at Jesus' life for a moment. We're going to also look at David for just a little while. We're going to look at temptation, and then we're going to return back to Jesus before we conclude. I'll try to do it as quickly as I can. But I want to ask you to remember a, a statement that Jesus made on the night of his betrayal. And I've got to put this in the right context because going back even before the night of his betrayal, one of the most infamous things that we read about in the record of the Word of God about Jesus was Jesus' temptation by the devil at the beginning of his ministry, correct? We studied it recently in our men's group on Wednesday night and that Jesus was tempted by the devil for 40 days and afterward he was a hungered and then the enemy came to him with some very specific temptations. But I don't want to draw attention to that today. My focus is the Bible says that after that temptation, when Jesus had successfully, if you will allow me to say that, thwarted or overcame those temptations, the Scripture says the devil left him for a season. Does anybody remember that? He left him. But he did leave him, but the reality is he did come back. And you say, well, Pastor, when did he come back? Well, John chapter 14, the night of Jesus' betrayal, we see the return of Satan as coming to Jesus. So look, and, and with this, here's what Jesus said. And I want you to catch this. It's in John 14, verse number 30. Here's what Jesus himself said. He said, the prince of this world cometh, and he hath nothing in me. 
Now, there is a spiritual depth to this that if you're not careful, you'll skim right over the top of. And you've got to see this today. What he's actually saying is, is that the devil is coming and he has no place of accusation rightfully against me. That he's not found a place of stronghold in my life. There's no place of temptation that, that I'm willing to yield to. There was no true temptation in that moment. There was no weakness in Jesus that the enemy could manipulate the will of God. As a matter of fact, in order to accuse, how many know the enemy is called the accuser of the brethren? And, and he accuses us because oftentimes he finds something in us. But when he came to Jesus, he couldn't even accuse him. He had to raise up false accusers to accuse his testimony because Jesus himself had said, he said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. The reality is Jesus had given the devil no place, no place in his life. He was fully committed to the will of God. Now, the reality is for you and I, oftentimes, the enemy will find a place of accusation or a place of weakness that temptation has as a, a, a truly valid temptation because we have not proven ourselves successful in a previous temptation. Are y'all out there? And so with this, but Christ, when he came to Christ, he did not find that place of accusation. He simply said, Jesus said, he came, but he found nothing in me. And that's why you read, he goes on to Judas of Iscariot because there was no place found in Jesus. There's another place in scripture, we're going to read it later, but it kind of coincides with this. It says that Jesus was tempted in all points like you and I are, yet without sin. So I want to go a little bit farther. There's probably going back, Dr. Brassville, to the message that you preach. There's been a common word that we've been talking about privately and sometimes publicly. It's a, it's a word that has great depth with, with it biblically, theologically. Matter of fact, if you go to study it out, it will overwhelm you. And, and, and you say, at times you say, please, dear God, send me a filter. Send me somebody that can filter the theological aspect and make it more practical. And it's the word sanctification. Being set apart, taken for the holy purposes of God. And so practically, I wrote a question and I wanted to answer it as I was studying. I said, was Jesus sanctified? And if so, how, or excuse me, when and how? And I answered it affirmative and I said, yes. Now listen, let me bring clarity. He was sanctified, not in the sense that he had previously been unholy and was now made holy. No, obviously he's always been holy. Matter of fact, holiness emits from who he is. And so I'm not saying it that way, but, the, but if you go back to sanctification in the old covenant with the Mosaic law, it wasn't just always something that was unholy declared to be holy, but sometimes it was just something common. And so I can say a yes in that sense that, that a common vessel was set apart for a divine purpose. And when that happens, that common vessel is no longer a common vessel. And so you say, Pastor, well, when did that take place? It was at the baptism of Jesus. At that particular moment when the Spirit of God, when Jesus comes up out of the water and the audible voice of God sets him apart. If that's to a degree what sanctification is, a realization either yourself or that space in your life that is being set apart for God, in that moment that audible voice sanctified and set him apart for God's purposes. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
And then, the record said by the evangelist, the Spirit of God comes and sits upon Jesus, setting him apart for ministry. But the thing I want you to note with me today is that but when the anointing of God comes upon Jesus as he is standing in the waters of the Jordan River with the mass of humanity perhaps on the shore, shoreline and his cousin John standing beside him and the, and the brown waters of the Jordan because typically as you get to the Judean wilderness, the waters go from clear where it's flowing out of the Sea of Galilee uh, to where Jesus most likely was baptized. It's, it's soiled by the earth and it's brown. Jesus is standing there and the Spirit of God comes upon him. And he's the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sin of the world. He does not immediately go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But that spirit that came upon him sends him into the Judean wilderness for a season and a time of temptation where the enemy, the adversary, would come to him as I have previously mentioned. And so during that particular time, we know that while Jesus was fasting, if you will, it was there that he would mortify his own fleshly appetites. And as, as you look at some of those temptations, and I know that you will, and I know that you have, I, I, I noted that one of the most famous is the, when he was hungry. You know, after 40 days of fasting, they tell us after the third to the seventh day of fasting, somewhere along the line, particularly hunger leaves. But almost instinctively, somewhere around the 40th day, hunger has to return, because if hunger does not return, then you will die. And so hunger returned, and how many of you know that's a natural appetite that is not necessarily sinful? Obviously, you can sin through hunger, right, or through eating, but in that moment, that's not what we're talking about. In this particular instant, Jesus, in this instant, when the enemy came to him and tempted him to, to, to uh, take the, the Word of God and to manipulate the plan of God or the purposes of God, and Jesus resisted, I wrote it this way, that even though it was a natural, non-sinful appetite of hunger that would be overcome by his submission to the will of God, in one sense, Jesus was disciplining his body because if he could subject it to the degree that it would resist the non-sinful, natural desire to eat, then he could resist sinful temptations that would appeal to his flesh later. And so the point I'm making is, is he was tempted and tried in all points. And the temptation wasn't just in that 40-day window of time. That for three years, Jesus walked among men and women, and he faced temptation, just like you and I did, and you and I do. But the thing that we look at Jesus is that, again, he did not sin. What a powerful thing that that is for us as we unlock this spiritual mystery to us today because it's not just that he gave us an example. He's not just giving you a template for you to look at and then strive to follow. But the good thing about who Christ is, he'll come to help you in your temptation and in your trial. You will not be alone. Right? How many of you know there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus? Right? No, not one like the lowly Jesus, and that I can call on him in the time of my season of trial and temptation. And he will come to me and he will aid me and I can gain his strength to overcome as he overcame. I believe that we all need a season in our life or even seasons of learning to mortify our flesh that we might draw close to God. If ever there was a need in the body of Christ, I believe that this, this word sanctification does need to 
to resurface within our, not only our vocabulary and our theology, but in our practical walk before God. That we have the realization that we are sanctified before God for a holy and a divine purpose. And it alters the way that I live on this planet that's called earth. And that I function amongst the people. That God is working in me. And I was a previously unholy vessel, but now I'm a holy vessel with the purposes of God being revealed in my life. And so therefore, church family, I don't want to soil what God has set apart. Let's go a little bit farther, if I can, for just a moment of time. When Jesus, and how many of you believe in rebuking the adversary? I, I believe in that. And so in my temptation, and when there are things that are in my mind or things that I might be dealing with, I, I believe, and I'm not someone that says, don't, don't speak to the enemy, don't speak to the adversary. I, I, I believe that. I believe that we rebuke. I believe that we, we pull down strongholds. I, do, I believe in all that. But let me just go ahead and share something with you. If while you're confessing that, you're giving the devil place in your life, and he's got a stronghold in you already. Are you hearing me today? By, by, by your life and you're grieving the Spirit of God in your heart by what we call an unsanctified lifestyle. While All the while you're rebuking the devil and pulling down strongholds. But he's got a temptation in your flesh that you're appeasing and you're not resisting and you're not mortifying. Then I'm telling you that that rebuke it's not producing your desi the desired effect. Because, you see, when the enemy came to Jesus, there was no place in him. No place of accusation. So again, let me say this. Many rebuke the enemy, yet constantly give him the right or the access or the point of accusation or stronghold in their life. And that's why you and I, we need a season or seasons of learning to mortify our fleshly appetite. Anytime I think about this, I have to be honest, I think about a season that any person that's a veteran, when you went in the military, you went to what we call boot camp. And you went through a season in your life where everything changed in a short period of time. I still sing the songs. Mama, mama, look at me. Look what the Air Force has done to me. They took away my faded jeans, and now I'm wearing Air Force greens. They took my hair took my identity, took the clothes that I carried there, my T-shirt, my tennis shoes, and, my, and I wore blue jeans in those days. I know that's a shock to some of you. And they took them all away, folded them up, and put them in a locker. And they put on me what they said I need to wear. And I had to learn a role. I had to learn a chain of command. I had to learn a new vocabulary. Are you all out there today? I had to go through a process where things that I used to could quickly give into, I can't give into anymore. Let me tell you, you may have been that person that says, man, I just got a sharp tongue. My grandma had it and my mama had it. And I'm telling you, when you're standing there in line in the military at the position of attention and somebody with a large brim hat is looking over you and you think you got a sharp tongue and you get to retaliate and respond, you better learn very quickly how to be mute. Are y'all out there today? Are you will quickly be ejected from the United States military? I just think, church family, we've got to have a season in our life where we say, all my battle is not with the devil. That sometimes my greatest battle is with these affections and these desires within my body that I've got to learn to, I've got to, learn to mortify. I want to go just a little bit farther if I can. So look at temptation with me briefly for a moment. 
When we think about temptation, I know the way. Now, I know some of the ladies probably say, well, my mind don't think that way. I'm just going to speak for the men. When you say temptation, immediately the first thought that comes to the mind of every man is sexual temptation. Oh, and nobody had the courage to say amen. I knew that. Not a single man. But I know your thoughts because I think like you. Thank you. Somebody had the courage to do so. And so, but let me tell you, temptation, as in this context, temptation to sin, is not necessarily just simply speaking about sexual temptation, right? There's a lot of things that you can, that you can breach in your communion with God that has nothing to do with your sexuality. So, but let's look at this if we can. It's, the, it's that famous passage in James. James chapter number 1, verses 13 through 15. Remember this. As we read this, remember, Jesus was tempted just like you are. I mean, no, God didn't tempt him. The Spirit led him into the wilderness, but it wasn't God that met him there. It was the enemy that met him there. So when any man is tempted, he said, don't let him say, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. Verse 14, let's read it down. This is very important. Read this slowly as we go. But every man, and in this situation, if there is a moment when we're speaking universally, men and women, but every person is tempted when he or she is drawn away by the devil. Is that what it says? When he's drawn away of his own lust. The word lust is simply desire. How many know desire can, you can have good desires or godly desires or desire that God allows us to have. If you didn't have desire, you'd have never got married right? You had never produced offspring if you hadn't had desire. So you're drawn away in this context, taking us beyond, beyond the parameters and enticed. Verse 15, and when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, it brings forth death. So desires can be manipulated. Often this enticement is by sight, sound, or proposition, or natural affection, or carnal appetite awakened in your flesh. And when lust conceives, when it's allowed, when you're allowed to think on it and ponder it and contemplate on it long enough, it will, be, it will move beyond sight and sound and suggestion. It will become the thought in the mind. And when it becomes a thought or a meditation in the mind, once that thought is allowed to remain in your mind or in your person, it will become like an unborn child. It will grow to the degree that it must be delivered. And once it's delivered, it will bring forth sin. That's the action of it. The motion or the performance of sinful behavior. And when sin is finished, it brings forth death. The reality is this is not new under the sun. This is all the way to the Genesis, and it will always be until we are redeemed from this carnal body in which we now dwell. And it behooves you to know, to know yourself, to know your desires, to know the things that you struggle with, so that you, when you could call upon the Lord for his aid. Let me go just a little bit farther. I, I know we live in the generation where the mess, you know, we have the day where books are written in the Christian community, your best life now. Let me tell you what your best life now will be. Your best life now is when you're overcoming sin on a daily basis. It's not when you get a good parking spot at Walmart. 
right? Or you get a deal that you go, oh my gosh, they accidentally marked that down. I got up there and they didn't know it was marked down. I got an extra 40% off. I'm living my best life now. No, your best life now is, is that when the prince of this world cometh, when the prince of this world cometh and he finds nothing in you, no place of manipulation of the will of God, no place of accusation or no stronghold, so that then when you open your mouth and begin to rebuke demonic powers, you have an anointing upon your life and you drive the devil away, glory to God. That's your best life now. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you a contrast, and then I'm going to wrap up very quickly. But I have to go, and this is where I felt like the Lord taking me to something I've studied out many times over the years, and it's in David's life. And we know that there was a moment of failure in David's life, and I'm not going to take you into all of the depth of it, certainly. But if you've ever read the Old Covenant, and you know that he that was the giant slayer, and that he that was a crowned king of Israel, the, the sweet psalmist of Israel, had a, not more than a moral failure. I mean, a moral failure is one thing. Murder is something entirely beyond. Second Samuel 12 tells the story when he had gone up on the rooftops. Everybody familiar with that? I'm not going to preach it to you, but just remind you of it. The army of Israel is in the field fighting against another army. But David stayed back at the palace. Whether or not he knew what he would see when he went to the top of the roof, I can't say. Many people say that he did that it was common for women to bathe on the rooftop. And so typically people in respect and privacy at a certain time chose not to go up there lest they fall into voyeurism. But for whatever reason, on that fateful evening, David goes up. And he espies the beautiful Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. He doesn't even know from afar who it is. Just it's a beautiful body bathing in front of him. And it awakens desire within him. And at that moment that it awakened desire within him, David had a choice. And we all have that choice. Every day we have that choice. That you can pull that down immediately in your mind and cast it far from you. Or you can give in to it. Now remember, this is through sexual temptation, but it's the same principles apply in the majority of our, in the areas of our life. And he sends for her, finds out who she is, and through enticement, through enticement, he lays with her that night. And it's a, it's a horrific story. He's later rebuked by the prophet, Nathan, who comes to him. And so for the sake of time, let me just tell you, when, when Nathan comes to him real quickly, here's something that Nathan said that, that I want to show you for a moment. And, and, and before we even get to that, let me, get, let me put this in, in context of James chapter number 1. Remember, David was drawn away of his own lust and enticed. That enticement became thought. The thought grew to action. And the result, I'm going to show you, was sin and death. Because when he was rebuked by the prophet, the prophet said, death's coming to your household because of the carnal choice that you made. Are y'all hearing me today? 2 Samuel 12, though, says something. And I want to help. I just feel in my heart that I want to help you overcome and help myself overcome sinful temptations. And I know we live in the generation of the church. People don't talk about sin in the church. And, and, and it's a travesty because we're dealing with it. As long as you're in the flesh, you're going to be dealing with the temptation to sin. And you need to know that you've got a helper in the Lord. 
that you can come to him, and I'll show you how you can come in a few moments. But this caught my attention, and I want to show you this because I, I believe once you see this of what sin really is, then it will cause you to, it will change the, the, the way that you look and do the things that you've given place to. 2 Samuel 12, verse number 9, the words of the prophet Nathan in his rebuke of David says this. Look at this real quickly, that first sentence. He said, you have despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight. I want you to think about that for a moment of time. Because what he said in that moment of time is he said, what you have done is, is you have breached the commandment of God. How many of you know that's what sin is? It's transgression to the revealed will of God. Transgression to the law of God. And he said, you have made a conscious choice to breach or to despise the commandment of God. And then he said, uh, in, in, in another place, when David, now don't forget that, and in Psalm 51, when David is repenting, here's something that David said that, again, caught my attention as I was putting these together. It's in the fourth verse of Psalm 51. When David is now broken before God and he's repenting, but notice what he says. He says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. And I want you to pause and think on that with me for a moment of time. And I want you to see about the repercussions of David's transgression. The repercussions of David's transgression were, is that the baby that was conceived in Bathsheba's womb from their night of sexual intercourse died. David moves to have Uriah killed. David has sinned against his own family. David, to a degree, if you will allow me to say it, sinned against the nation. But in his prayer before God, he didn't say, against Uriah I sinned, against Bathsheba I've sinned, against my wife and children I've sinned. He said, God, against you. And you only have I sinned. The others were collateral damage to the decisions that we make. And if you and I could get a revelation of that in our life and say, God, I'm accountable to you for every thought, for every imagination, for every attitude, for every word, for the things that I do, the things that I fail to do, God. It's between you and I. And I need the help of God to be able to overcome as he overcame. Are y'all here? Thank God David would teach us how to repent. I thank God for repentance. True repentance, not I'm sorry. I mean, no, I'm sorry is not repentance. Right? Anybody, you know, when you had children, I know that you've got young children, that you, you get the kids, one does something to the other, and you know what parents do, so go tell your brother you're sorry, or go tell your sister you're sorry, and they come in, and they wait for mom and dad not to look if they can. I'm sorry. And then they slap them the second time. That's not repentance before God. Repentance is when you say, God, against you, you're holy. And you've called me to be holy. You're holy and you set me apart. You called me out of sin and darkness and iniquity to be a light to my family, my friends, my co-workers, to this darkened world, and I've sinned against you. And when you have that in your heart, you truly repent before the Lord. David, in his prayer later in that text, he said in Psalm 51, 16, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. 
How many of you know it's not in church attendance, no ritual observation? Sometimes it's not in counsel, support group, or therapy. It's just a broken and a contrite spirit before God. But as I get ready to close, though, and bring this back to Jesus, I want you to note one more thing, because I'm showing you a little bit of a contrast between one that failed and one that overcame. I don't know about you. When I'm in my truest hour of temptation, when the weakness of my flesh is present, and I do feel demonic powers as well oppressing me, I'm not calling out to David to come to my aid. But I will call out to the son of David and say, Lord, I need your help. Can you come to me and strengthen me in my walk before God? But I saw this, and I want you to see this real quickly. It's 2 Samuel 12, verse 14. Because here's what the prophet said to David. He said, look at this. He said, because by this deed... You have given great occasion to the enemy of the Lord to blaspheme. Now, go back to Jesus for a moment. Remember what Jesus said? Let's reconnect. David's sin gave the enemy an opportunity to accuse, blaspheme, manipulate the will of God, get a stronghold in his family. But Jesus, subjecting his flesh to the will of God, could say the prince of this world comes and he has no he has no place of accusation in my life why is that so important why is that so important as i'm getting ready to close so that you and i can go to jesus knowing that he was tempted like you and i are every area in all points yet without sin and if i'm sincere in my pursuit of him then i believe that he will come king james english succor he will help me. He will relieve me. He will come to my aid. The writer of the book of Hebrews said it behooved him. I'm closing here in the book of Hebrews. Four verses to close this message. Aren't you thankful for Jesus today? Hebrews 4 and 13 says this. this I'm trying to help you. Let me, let me see if I can fold this all together. An evangelist, an evangelist wants to reach you in your sin. He wants you to come to that place, if you don't know the Lord, where, where, where you are brought to the saving knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? And I, I have that within my heart as well. I want every man, woman, boy, and girl to hear the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But my pastor's heart is I want you to have more than just forgiveness of sin. I want you to have victory over sin. I want you to know that the hands that used to sin are now set apart for the glory of God. The mind that used to harbor evil thoughts and imaginations and you had a sharp tongue and you used to curse and you used to say evil things against people and you used to say words that hurt your family but now you can walk in the room and bless them in the name of Jesus because you are sanctified, set apart by the power of God. And when you t have temptation in your own flesh, you know you got a place, you got a source, you got a place that you can, you got a person that you can call on and he always answers. And that's the Lord Jesus. As I close with these four verses, these are going to help you. Get these down in your spirit. Verse 13 of chapter 4 says this. All things are naked and open unto the eyes of whom we have to do. That right there will help you 
Right there, will have, that'll liberate you. I'm telling you because, go back to the Genesis. The first thing that man did when he sinned was try to sow a fig leaf and cover it up, hoping that God wouldn't notice. And we still do that today. We put on our cloak, we put on our shroud, we put on our smile, we put on our religious attire, we put on our religious music. We want the world to think, and we want those around us to say that, to, to not, to, that, we, that we're not dealing with something. But God already knows. God knows, and I've found out, you don't have to be in the world to sin. You can be sitting right here under the four walls of this church and anger and hatred and resentment and bitterness be boiling up on the inside of you. But let me tell you, all things are open to him. David would later write, and maybe it was from that experience that he would write, he said, God, you know my rising up, but you also know my down sitting. In this passage here, he said, it's... And I've tried in my own personal walk with God. I've learned over the years that there are some things I can't confess to anybody. I know that there are some people that say, well, we need to be transparent. We need accountability partners. That's true. But listen, I can't tell you everything that goes on in here. Because if I do, you will judge me for the very thoughts that you have. But you won't tell anybody about are you out there? But I can guarantee you there's one thing I learned to do over the years. I learned to, to, to be totally transparent before God and say, God, you already know I'm struggling in this area. You know there's resentment in my heart towards this person. You know I'm feeling frustration towards this. You know that there's an, a, a desire in me in this other area here, God, that, that, that I'm struggling with. And God, I need your help. Everything is naked. Let's read this 14th and 15th and 16th verse. 14th verse, very fast, but we're going to go ahead and read it. Seeing then we have a great high priest, thank God. Daryl's joining me on the platform and make people feel better. That is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our profession of faith. Hold fast to it. Hold fast to it. He loves you today. But this 15th verse and then the 16th, for we have not a high priest. You got to read it in the right, the right way which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. So what that says is, he is touched. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be honest. As a pastor, I can get frustrated at times in counseling people. I can get frustrated because in my mind I'm like, how many times do we have to try to help you with this? I can. I'm just being transparent here today. That's the carnal side. That's the carnal mind. But I'm telling you, he is touched by the feeling of your infirmity. That's why, that's why the greatest therapy is an appointment with Jesus. The greatest support group is you and the Father and the mediator, the Son, who sent in the Holy Spirit to strengthen you and comfort you. That's, that's, that's the therapy. That's the room where things really get healed, where, where you get delivered and you get victory. He's touched because look at this. I told you I'd read that passage to you later. It says, he was in all points. Are you kidding me? Lord, you mean you thought the thought that I'm thinking? Or you've had a feeling or a desire like I have? Yes, he did. Yet without sin. 
There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. I could tell him about all my troubles. And he will never turn me away. Look at this last verse here. So you come boldly or confidently to the throne room of grace that you may obtain mercy. And look at this and find grace to do what? Remember what he is? He's a helper. You'll find grace to help in your time of need. I'm so thankful for Jesus today. Let me go back and put it all together. Several weeks ago, I preached you a message. It's from my heart to yours. I said he's more than a savior. If you don't keep that in the right context, that could be sacrilegious. So I hope that you allowed me to, and you stayed in the right context with me. And I said to you, he's your example. And I believe that with all my heart. I'm so thankful that I have a template in the word of God about how to live a life and a lifestyle. Right? But, but let, let, let me see if I can put that though. Uh, that's in the book. The book is beautiful. The book is a living testament. And so you might be in a, in a college class. I'm, I'm around folks that are in college classes. And the, and the book's got the information. The information's there. The questions and sometimes the answers are in the book. But that doesn't mean you're still not struggling to process that. Don't put me in an algebra class today. I would need a friend. So the point of, real quickly is, the book, he's our example. Yes, we have a template. We read. We study. We say, God, I want to walk in that way. I want to follow his example. I want to love like Jesus. I want to give like Jesus. I want to care like Jesus. But that doesn't necessarily take away the struggle and the challenge that I feel dealing with this carnal, fleshly appetite. But that's where the writer said he's more than your example. He's your helper. And by helper, he will come to your aid. Isn't that beautiful? He will come to you. You come to him, he'll come to you. I read in the book of James, if we draw near to God, he'll draw near to us. And so I believe today in my heart when I was praying about this service, as it closes, our heads are bowed and our eyes closed. I thought, God, if I can do anything at all, I just want to point the people to Jesus. I want you to know today, I want you to hear this. Please don't think that I am not being respectful of therapy or counsel or a support group. I believe in all of those things. I'm a counselor to many. I have counseled people in my pastoral ministry for many, many years, and I'm sure I will continue to do so. Others have counseled me when I needed counsel. So I'm not in any way taking away from the validity of that or the value of it. But I want you to know that, that that cannot take the place of you simply coming to him. He said, come to the throne room of grace. 
and you'll obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. How many of you know there should be no shame in the church that says, I'm in a time of need? I'm in a time of need in my life. I don't have to tell everybody what that time of need is. It might be something I'm dealing with. It might be something in my family. It might be something in my mind that no one knows but God. I don't, I don't have to put that on the screen and say, look what I'm dealing with here today. There should be no shame in the church for an altar invitation to be given and for you to feel like others are going to judge you when the pastor says, come to Jesus today. Come to him, he's your helper. You've got a need in your life, come to him today. Draw near to him today. Be honest, confess. If it's sin in your own personal life, man, confess it to God and say, God, I need your help. I need your help to overcome. I think that's the beauty of the church. That's what church should be. It's being perfected. If something's being perfected, that means there's some imperfection that we're still dealing with. Maybe that's why Joe said, I believe there'll be another altar on the backside of this, of this previous altar service. The first one, the altar, people came forward to worship because he was their savior. But on this back end, is it possible that there would be those among us who would have the courage to come forward and just either find a place to pray for a few moments today that simply by doing so you're saying I need his help today I just need his help I need the help of the one who promised that he would come I think that's fair and some folks are already moving to the altar right now I think you can just go ahead and make your way it's, a, it's an open invitation today there's beauty in it he longs for you to come to Him, to come beyond the structure of the church, to come beyond the organized religion, to come to Him, to just come to Him, come to Jesus today.